too you survived your crazy weekend i guess i was in vegas yeah no kidding i was getting nervous i hadn't heard from you because i I originally thought you were gone for like two days so when it was monday night or whenever i reached out to you or tuesday even like i hope he's okay (laughs) yeah yeah no i was fine we were uh, yeah we left saturday and then yeah monday tuesday oh yeah sunday monday we were there and then tuesday was an all-day kind of flying back deal that's great have you been um, to vegas i've driven through and i've seen the um surrounding uh sites but that's about it such a weird town yeah well i hope you had a good time yeah i did there was a concert out there uh, so it was a very weird mix of there was a concert called when we were young it was like blink 182 and my chemical romance and a bunch of these like I don't know, 2000s, like, emo-type bands, I guess, because there was a lot of, like, a lot of blue-haired people with, like, septum piercings walking around because the concert got canceled. So it was like, there was a windstorm there. So the concert got canceled. So all of the blue-haired people were, like, wandering around the casinos with nothing to do, and they were mixed in with the... (laughs) There was, like, another set of people that were all wearing, like matching um like gym suits or um with track suits they were wearing like matching track suits with like gold chains and like it was almost like the break dancers and the emo people like met and i don't understand like the track suit guys were like from some other country okay in eastern europe i don't know what was yeah, going on yeah. but it was very like it was very weird that's funny yeah yeah wow yeah, I mean, well, it's a it's a melting pot there for sure. Oh yeah, you get visitors yeah. from all over the world. Yeah, it was fun, but uh, you know, a little gambling, a little football, a little golfing. You know, yeah. we, went, we we went golfing on Monday, and the golf course was beautiful. But then we got out to like the eighth hole, and there's like homeless people just sleeping out by the tee. <laughs> Oh, geez, really? Yeah, it was like very weird. Like every the really nice golf course, but then homeless people. Is it becoming a problem there? from what you could see i haven't been there i went 10 years ago i'd say okay and there was definitely more kind of homeless people out sleeping in the they have these walkways that connect the casinos because they don't you don't want to cross the street out there because the roads are like six lanes wide 
Yeah. So they have these walkways. And what I noticed is before it was very much like there wasn't much nonsense going on in the walkways. But when you take these walkways now, there was a lot of like, it was some homeless people sleeping, but there was a lot of like people dressed up like Captain America and Elmo and girls and skimpy outfits trying to like get you to take pictures with them. And then I think what they do is they'll charge you or you have to pay tips to them for pictures, but they're very aggressive. And it was, you know, I, I, I got that move. I've worked in the city for years, so I know the move. Like you don't make eye contact. You sort of like, you know, use somebody else to buffer so that they don't, they don't, you never want to draw attention to yourself. So I was fine, but I, then I noticed that like, if anybody like showed any weakness, they would jump right on them. Isn't that funny? Huh? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I know. That's always tricky. I mean, there's that school of thought where if you give them money or whatever, then you're just enabling their situation or perhaps their hidden drug addiction or whatever they're suffering from. And then there's the other school of thought that, you know, just you got to help your your neighbor in need. But it, yeah. anyway, back to the homelessness, though, I mean, it seems to be a, a growing problem like nationwide. Yeah. The economy certainly doesn't help, but... Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't have a lot to go by as far as um, Vegas, but I just did seem like it was a little bit more of a, you know, a presence this time around than it was ten years ago. But overall, it's nice. Yeah. I um, yeah. didn't get to do much pool time because it was pretty cold out there. It was like mid sixties, uh, so that's the one thing I miss. But I'm probably planning on going back soon. So highly yeah. recommended. Mountains out there are beautiful. I didn't get a chance to do much hiking or exploring, but I, I could see them in the distance. They look nice. Yeah. Hangover, hangover part four, you survived. Yeah, you yeah, come there was back only three of us. Tattoos on your face. No tattoos. There was only three of us, but I was going to take one of the homeless guys and have him be part of our wolf pack oh, and then geez. send him up on the roof. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. All right, so enough of my Vegas trips. I'm back to normal now. I'm hopefully going hiking this weekend, but you oh, want to boy. announce, Stomp, I see in our, our script here, I don't know anything about this. You want to announce our first listener spotlight. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're trying to broaden out it a little bit for our topics. And, um, you know, there have been several requests by listeners saying, hey, I think we have a really neat story to tell. Would you guys consider having us on? So next week, we're going to give it a shot. And we are going to have um, a couple that I actually met. I think, Mike, you might have met them at the 100K, but they approached me earlier in the evening and actually helped me lug my gear in and stuff like that. So uh, Jake and Julie are going to jump on next week and um, we're going to hear their story. And, uh, you know, from the script that they sent over and topic ideas, I think it's going to be a really nice conversation. So keep a leg out for that. Yes, very excited. Always yeah. fun to meet new people. And I, yeah, I think I did meet them briefly, but I'm sure they're going to have some cool stories. I'm always good. Happy to uh, geek out about hiking. Oh, no question about it. And uh, let's see here. Oh, did you hear about Zebs? They're cutting back their hours because this is of an staffing outrage. issues. This is an outrage. Where am I going to get my um, my candy and my salsa? So pop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently it's staffing issues. Um, I'm just shocked. I, I just have questions about this. Like, why are there staffing issues? Where are these people? Like, what's going on? There's, there's no more government incentive, right? Are they on unemployment? What's happening here? I don't, I don't know, it. but I feel like, um, I feel like if I was like a retired, a retired person that was living up in, uh, like the North Conway area, like picking up a few hours at Zeb's would be like the coolest thing ever. You know, I'll make some soap. Yeah. 
I'll stock the yeah. shells with salsa. I'll go up and like do that. Um, you know, the stuffed animal mooses. I'll, I'll I do whatever <laughs> I could to keep the store running. That place is great. Yeah, sure. I mean, there are plenty of kids around. That that seems like a job for an adolescent. Where are they? You could get like, young kids, or you could get retirees, or whatever. But um, I don't know. I don't yeah, get it. That's dude. unfortunate. Yeah, I, I do not get it. I'm not sure what the hell's going on, but it's it's impacting everything. I'm even seeing it a little bit in some of these nursing homes. Like they, I mean, I'm doing the virtual PT, and they're they're actually cutting back, and it's impacting my virtual PT. I'm like, what is going on? Anyhow, yeah. personal frustration. Um, Interesting. I'm yeah. just looking at the Zeb's website here, and the one thing I am noticing, which is kind of kind of interesting, is like it doesn't look like there's any way for you to um, apply for a job on the website. Hmm. Just like an old school website. Yeah, well, it looks. It doesn't look horrible. You can you can buy a gift certificate on here. You should be able to apply for a job. But um, interesting. Yeah, I wonder how many people have to work at Zeb's at one time. I mean, that place gets crazy sometimes. Like, I've been in there where you can't even move. Yeah, I would imagine at least probably a dozen people. Yeah, I would think so, too. So, well, mm. that's too bad. So, if you're up in North Conway and you're looking for some extra hours, definitely knock on Zeb's door and see if see if you can get a job there. Yeah, otherwise, otherwise don't give them any business because they don't have the people to handle your business. <laughs> that's the catch-22. It's, like, brutal. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Oh, I mean, I'm a recruiter by trade, so I could certainly help them with a strategy on hiring if they if they want to reach out to me. But overall, I mean, I think it, my guess would be that it's probably going to always be sort of difficult up in those areas because it's such a retail and services heavy economy that um, you know those jobs by nature tend to be more of turnover, and you know, you if you get a good person that's willing to stay long term then, you know, it's it's like gold, but it's more common to have people sort of be transient in their lives and pick up some hours for six months or a year and then move on to, uh, you know, something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe they will reach out. Yes. Um, and then speaking of stretching thin here, Stomp, you had sent over a video about how search and rescue teams are getting stretched thin on on staffing as well. Yeah, I, I saw this randomly. It's a PBS NewsHour video, and it it starts off over on the western side of the uh, the country in Colorado, I believe, if, if I remember correctly. Um, but basically, Colorado is, is experiencing record numbers of rescues. I mean, literally, like, thousands of rescues throughout the state and the region. And I was watching the video, and halfway through, they put in Jim Neeland, actually, from Fishing Game here in New Hampshire, just for a little brief little snippet. And he was almost, it seemed to me like he was put in there as a counterpoint, because what the gist of this video is, is how do you manage this? You know, the, the search and rescue teams are spread so thin. Do you, and then it went into this billing topic. You know, do you bill people? Do you not bill people? Um, so it's a very interesting watch. I'm not going to make any judgment on it. It did look, though, to me as though they put New Hampshire in there as sort of like, I, I don't know, it just came across to me as like, oh, New Hampshire's the bad guy for billing people, that type of vibe, you know what I mean? So check it out and see what you think and uh, let us know. Have you seen it, Mike? I did. I did watch it. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And it I, is. I, um, I did sort of um, 
think a little bit about from a staffing perspective. Sure. Like it seems like the volunteer organizations in New Hampshire don't tend to have that issue. Maybe it's because the volume of rescues isn't as high mm-hmm. as a place like Colorado, but right. it seems to me like um, you would want to make sure that you have a really good sort of recruiting strategy. And my first guess is probably I wonder whether some of these search and rescue teams that are struggling for staffing, whether or not the, I guess the, the, the point of entry is too intimidating or perceived to be so intimidating that they don't get people that otherwise would join. Because I feel like in New Hampshire, it's sort of very open, like, you know, let's get, let's see how everyone can participate. Obviously, you don't want anyone that's physically incapable of doing the job because they put everyone at risk. But the the barrier to entry for search and rescue teams should not be so high that people are afraid to explore it. Yeah, I wonder what their um, their, uh, for lack of a better word, burnout rate is, or you know, burnout phenomena is. Because if you're dealing with that many, I, I say I'm really ignorant about how the Western teams are organized. But if you're dealing with that many rescues, holy moly, you better have some robust membership. Yeah, and I also wonder, like, is it such crazy terrain out there? Mm. Um, you know, are, are so many of these rescues requiring, like, ropes and, and you know, so, mountain true mountaineering experience? Like, if every rescue require, in New Hampshire required, like, mountain rescue service, then it would be a different situation. Like, but most oh, of sure. the search and rescues here in New Hampshire are just carryouts. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. But uh, yeah, check out the video. It's just an interesting. I, I just want to get your take on how they placed New Hampshire in the story because it's it's sort of interesting. Yeah, and I do think that like it's it's a New Hampshire should be pretty proud of themselves as far as like how they've they've got their infrastructure set up and how capable uh, the search and rescue teams are of responding and supporting because it sure. doesn't sound like that's the case in a lot of other places. Oh, yeah. Well, except for the fact that some of the other states are implementing the, you know, variations on the hike safe card, it would seem. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. So other states are following suit. um, So, and that's been a massive success here in New Hampshire. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that they should expand the hike safe card stomp and add a um, approach animal safely card as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that would be good too. <laughs> Super important. And why do you say that? <laughs> well, because you put in another article here about a uh, hiker who who claims she was charged and gored by a bison. So, yeah. and and you can see the video on here, and and you can see that you know the the person was um, just a little too close to the um, the bison here. So, yeah. She's just kind of talking to them, and like I think when you're when you're within reach of getting gored, then yeah. it's kind of on you. But dude, it got two million views. Like it was totally worth it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love the reaction when she like turns like when the bison just turns around and just is like, "Get out of my world!" Like she's just like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Oh my yeah. god. Hey, whatever. It don't means yeah. a strong habit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in her defense, I guess she's like, she's probably like five or six feet away, but that's still way too close. Oh, yeah, for sure. For a massive animal like that with a history of charging, hell yep. no. 
Well, we will put that. Um, we will put that up on the the show notes and then stomp. I haven't got a chance to look at this. You said Jen Greasy sent us um, some info about uh, beer encounters. Yeah, well, it's sort of interesting. She um, sent it with a, a note saying this should uh, give Mike some more information rather than just throwing food at them. And I thought that was <laughs> sort of funny. But the article is interesting. It, it sort of encompasses everything that we've touched upon over several episodes by now, I would think, you know, in terms of strategy. So um, I won't bore you guys to death with it, um, but it does go a little bit deeper than you and I may have touched upon with different strategies and uh, circumstances and how to deal with situations. So we'll give you the link for that as well. It's very interesting. Okay. So oh, throwing my throwing my Snickers bar at the, at the, the beer and <laughs> running away isn't going to work? Uh, well, I, I think there's validity to to that for sure yeah. I, I don't recall seeing that strategy in the article unfortunately yeah. <laughs> but yeah. of course you know looking big and uh, avoiding the, the cross uh, intersection with cubs and things like that are all in there but there are a couple others that are handy Got and uh, yeah cool thanks Jen all right well sticking sticking with the topic of um animal encounters here so this article has been going around like i feel like this stuff always happens in like malaysia indonesia thailand or whatever but there's an article going around um this i can only assume this nice older lady she's out sort of collecting food or doing what she's doing um walking around in the in the wilderness in indonesia and she she went missing so her name was Jara, and she's yeah. 54 years old. She was co- collecting rubber from a plantation in the Jambi province, and mm-hmm. her husband was searching the area, and unfortunately, Stomp, mm-hmm. it didn't end well. What happened? I mean, nightmare fuel. A 22-foot <laughs> giant snake <laughs> ate this poor woman. Oh, my God. Isn't that Yeah, insane? and they like... Every time, what, so this same story kind of happens every couple of years, and it's always like the pictures are exactly the same. It's like the snake with a giant bulge in the middle of it, and apparently, like they, then this probably isn't even like the snake eating a human. This is probably just like stock photo or something. But mm-hmm. they cut it open, and they found like all of her clothes and, and everything in there. So it's like, yeah, pretty creepy. That is unbelievable. So they found the woman in the snake. Yes. Wow. That is yeah. crazy. How how does a python disable you? Does it like bite you or? I think they squeeze you to death. But well, I mean, it, slowly though. I, I would assume that she had time to sort of wrestle away. Or, I just no, don't know I don't. I think once the. I mean, I think a fifty-four-year-old woman in Indonesia is probably not strong <laughs> enough to fight off a twenty-two-foot. Um, python once it starts squeezing i mean it's like a giant muscle i don't even think you could fight it off well I, it I, yeah because i'm 53 in about a week <laughs> yeah, you're like a bigger guy like but i don't even know if you would have the strength to like fight it off i'm gonna have to look up some videos on this i guess i'll go to like live leak or something and do some more investigating because i'm fascinated by this like how does a snake do that so I feel like the crocodile hunter like he had some videos where like the snakes were wrapping around him and he was like getting his way out of it so i think you have to like get to the end of it and like you can start pushing it a little bit but you should find someone that has a giant snake and see if you can get out of get out of it i think yeah let's try it yeah no no let's you try it (laughs) 
<laughs> I can think of some YouTube channels that might be interested in that, but we'll, true. we'll see what that's happens. True. That is <laughs> true. So, anyway, oh, but um, that's it. Stay away from beer. Stay away from bisons. Definitely stay away from pythons. Yeah. Um, but that's all we have in animal news, in environmental news. Stomp, you've pulled an article here. Um, I'm in the I'm in the market for a new car at this point, and my wife is looking for a big gas guzzler. But um, mm. electric electric vehicles are definitely of interest to me. But you pulled this article talking about how hilly and windy terrain will cut an electronic vehicles or electric vehicles battery uh, time in half. Yeah, it's really interesting. It comes out of Wyoming in particular, and it's just a uh, an individual's ordeal, you know, traveling to different locations in the state. And there's a report. Um, he wrote a book about the subject titled On the Trail, Electric Vehicle Advice and Anxiety. And on top of that, there's additional information that w- was put out that essentially says that if you have an EV car, uh, you have to factor in hilly terrain and winds, which you know you would assume would be the case in some place like New Hampshire or mm-hmm. Wyoming. And according to this information, it's saying it can potentially cut your EV battery life by half. I, mm. That's pretty amazing. I don't know. If that's the case, that's that would be a disaster for certain locations. Yeah. I mean, I keep thinking about it because I am, uh, my wife's car is kind of, we've had it for like nine years, so it is time for a new one. And we did do some shopping last week, and I think I got to do a little bit more this weekend, which hopefully isn't going to screw up my hiking. But um just the idea of doing an electric car at this point would just be a non-starter for us just because we're, we're driving from Amesbury to Maine and then we do you know a fair amount of good road trips but I still don't necessarily think I would trust the electric vehicle to like it would like I would have to get like a charging thing up in Maine and then have a charging thing at home and the story talks about that like you can't call AAA <laughs> what are they going to do? Charge you on the road? No, they're going to drag you somewhere to charge. So, I mean, that's another. We we talked about infrastructure a bit ago, but that's another yeah. uh, trouble spot for a lot of this. But that leads into the next article. Um, apparently, some Finnish study came out and said that you know the, the the battery turnover is somewhere around ten years, and at that type of turnover rate, there isn't enough cobalt and lithium but specifically cobalt at the moment because they don't they would have to dig for more to actually fulfill that turnover so i think there's a lot of headwinds you know heading into this ev idea it's very interesting as it develops yeah we'll see i mean hopefully in like five years all this stuff will be pretty much sorted out and you know the mileage ranges and all that stuff will be such that it's it's a non-issue but um We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I just don't have the, I just don't have the stomach to drop like sixty or seventy grand on an electric vehicle at this point to sort wow. of risk it with yeah, the new technology. The given my my situation, yeah, hell yeah. I mean that's it's outrageous. I mean like what? What's the cheapest? Like forty grand, somewhere around there. Yeah, I think so. But uh, anyway, but I I think uh, snowmobiling is the way to go. Anyway, Stomp, forget these electric vehicles. Yeah, good old four stroke sled. Which uh, brings us to the next topic. I, I just found out I'll be uh, guiding, snowmobile guiding this winter again, so I'm super stoked and pumped. Um, it's Bretton Woods, out of Bretton Woods, and um, White Mountain uh, snowmobile tours. So we'll give you the link. 
I, you know, I would recommend trying it because it is a lot of fun and um, you just can't beat it. You know, what we do is take people up over Jefferson Notch, up to Berlin and Wombach and it's a great time. So if anybody's interested, keep it in mind. Yeah, I have to book. I'm, I'm booking it this year. I'm going to get my brother. He'll be dependable and yeah. he'll go with me. So well, um, Last season was good. weird though. I mean, it was, it was bad. It was yeah. a hard season to book because of the weather. But yeah, hopefully this season will be much, much better for snow. And uh, speaking of that, there is a, a, a free safety class that Fishing Game is offering. We'll give you the link for that if you're interested in learning the safety uh, surrounding use of a snowmobile. Uh, that's pretty handy. Yeah, I would definitely recommend taking that because uh, I think I don't I don't track the the snowmobile incidents as much as the hiking, but it's I would say uh, in the height of winter you're averaging like three four crashes a week, and they'll have some weeks where they've got like six or seven people injured. So yeah, don't mess around. Interesting. Anyhow, yeah, I'm psyched for winter. Oh my god, I'm psyched, and we'll be talking about that tonight. All that winter gear you need. Yeah, definitely. We'll be, uh, we'll be covering that again. So, um, pop culture talk stomp. So, this is where you get to add your new drop, right? Woo! Yeah, we got a new one. Yeah. The real deal. Hey, what's that sound? It must be time for the pop culture segment with Mike and Stomp. So uh, first thing we want to start off with here is Stomp is thinking about. So we're gonna do an, uh, we're gonna do a, a thing about Laconia and Weir's Beach. So you're yeah. you want to talk about uh, classic arcade? Oh games? my goodness! Yeah, I was blown away. We um, spent the weekend. We went to a wedding down in Laconia, and just spent the 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 entire Sunday exploring Weir's Beach, and then we went to Fun Spot and this and that. And uh, Fun Spot blew me away, being an old school arcade game guy from the eighties. I mean, they, they this place has hundreds and hundreds of vintage arcade games. And as I played and roamed around this place, I came to realize that it's actually associated with um, a museum and um, an organization that seeks to preserve all these old stand-up arcade games. So it's quite an amazing place. And it's called the American Classic Arcade Museum. And, they, you know, this place, is, you know, I feel like a late bloomer to a lot of this stuff. I've always known about Weir's Beach. I've always known about Fun Spot. But having gone to these places now, I'm blown away at, at how much history and just... Uh, awesome culture there is in these places. So if you haven't gone, check it out. But I'm talking 40-year-old video games that I haven't seen in ages. I was like a kid again. It was incredible. But um, back, there's this one person in particular that's associated with the, with the museum, and his name was Scott Gowlin. And he, back in like the, the mid-'80s, before the, the whole, I don't know what happened to video games, but I think it was the uh, the introduction of say like the commodore and the the more advanced game systems and things like that you know playstation this and that sort of killed video games um but this guy has a huge collection at at fun spot and uh he died of cancer back in 2011 i believe and uh i know you just got to go and see his stuff it's incredible but uh we have the link for the um, 
actual museum itself and they're a nonprofit, so they take donations and my biggest question was how do they maintain all these games because i remember back in the day these games would be broken or you know out of repair so often so to have 300 plus <laughs> old video games is amazing to me so uh it's awesome super cool have you ever been there i have been there and um i actually um the the video game sort of area the video game um era. places in my area are actually they've got very similar like you know there's 40 year old video games on um hampton beach so yeah. hampton beach has an active arcade that has like a bunch of old games and then salisbury beach has an arcade as well that has a bunch of these old games so you can go in there yeah. and play yeah like galaga cubert tempest yeah, um, they have the old Dragon's Lair. Like all these old games are in there, and I don't know how they maintain them. I'm assuming that you know there must be some people that are sort of experts in maintaining these, and they have you know access to old parts and things like that. But I, you know, the, a lot of these games are, you know, they they look a little like kind of worn, and the the boxes on the outside are definitely like sort of bleached out by the sun and whatnot but the overall like they're, they're still working and you can go to these places anytime you want i've been to the one in weir's beach as well and it's really cool oh yeah oh yeah the smaller one there by the water it's super yep. cool yep. yeah it's amazing well i mean yeah. not only that but the electricity costs to keep this place open it's it's incredible but yeah. anyway yeah. I just wonder if we're like of a certain age where like we get excited about this, but like younger kids don't really care about these big arcade games. I don't, I don't really know. Possible, but I mean, I think Fun Spot is neat in the sense that they incorporate a bunch of other things like bowling and, um, you know, they have a, a large room for birthday parties and this and that. So I think as a business, they're surviving aside from the video games. Um, yep. So anyway, yeah, great stuff. Really neat. All right, so our next topic is uh, the chess cheater. So we've been talking about um, this guy, Hans Niemann, who has been accused of cheating um, supposedly by potentially putting like devices inside of himself and and things like that. So mm. this guy has finally, and I think the, the prime issue has been that the, the, the current world champion, Magnus Carlsen, has basically accused this guy of cheating. So Hans Niemann is suing Carlson and some other folks, I'm assuming some folks that are involved with chess.com for a hundred million dollars in damages on the heels of this this cheating scandal. So yeah. Um, interesting, huh? Yeah. It he's is fighting back. I think he's going to be in trouble. I think he's going to have a difficult time because they have, particularly on the online games, they've been able to analyze his moves on um, these computer games, and they have sort of standard ratings around like what percentage these chess masters um, hit as far as optimized moves compared to a computer. So yep. if a computer will look at the board and say like, okay, this is the most optimal move, if you do it every time, you get 100%. Like most of these grandmasters can get up to about 65 to 75% optimized against a, a computer. Mm -hmm. And when they look at like Neiman's games on chess.com, I think he was, was consistently hitting like 75 or 85% of... Um, the optimized games, which typically is an indicator that you're using some sort of cheating. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you can't get away with anything today. Yep. 
So we will follow the latest chest cheating news on this hiking podcast and keep you up to date. Yeah, I just wonder, is that their only evidence against the player, though? An AI algorithm or just stats? Is that uh, I don't all they know. had? I think the online cheating is a lot easier for them to prove versus the over the board. I don't know about the over the over the board cheating. Interesting, yeah, because they didn't physically find something on him, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the the, the in person games, I don't think that they've physically been able to find anything on him. Wow, um, yeah. and Carlson hasn't really done himself any favors because he like refuses to actually play him in an environment where presumably it would be more controlled. So it may be. You know, maybe they would be better off doing like a pay-per-view thing where, you know, they 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 agree to be searched before going into a game, and yeah, yeah, I would pay to watch that at this point. I'm interested enough. Yeah, yeah, me too. Well, yep. we'll, we'll see the, the court action on Law TV as well. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right, so next topic here. Oh, Stomp, you want to do this, huh? So the, you've got well, one here. I'm looking, we should keep it brief because we do have a lot to cover, but I am fascinated by this story. The whole TMZ uh, confirmed that Twitter is a done deal with uh, Elon Musk. I think that's pretty wild um, just in terms of how Twitter's operated their behavior with censorship and this and that. I, you know, I don't, we don't need to get on a rabbit hole with this, but uh, let's keep a lookout to see how they treat Twitter now and Musk because I'm sure that there will be certain parties involved that uh, are going to do their best to destroy Elon and maybe even Twitter. Who knows? I don't personally yeah. like Twitter. I think it's a cesspool. I, I get the whole global, like, you know, it's the soapbox for the world. You know, I get it. But Twitter hasn't necessarily stood by that. I think the users were expecting that and that wasn't necessarily the case. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with it. Yeah, and I'm more concerned about, like, from an Elon Musk perspective, like, I'm much more focused on uh, the work that he's doing with Starlink and SpaceX. I think those are much more important than anything to do with Twitter, which is just sort of, you know, it is what it is. There's a million of these. You can go to Reddit. You can go to Facebook. You can go to Instagram. You do whatever you want. Twitter does basically the same. Twitter, for me, I've never really, I've had an account for a while. I got rid of it just because I never used it. And um, Mm -hmm. it's just confusing to me. I can never figure out, like, how these conversations are going on and it seems like it's a bunch of people that are you know influential within their own areas um, that that talk with each other but I think the vast vast majority of people that um, are living life are not on Twitter I think it's a very small type of thing and it seems like there's just a lot of like toxicity around um, if you don't do or say the right thing, you're going to get in trouble there. So oh, yeah. uh, I'm not very good at that stuff. And But I do think that it is going to be interesting now that Elon Musk has taken over this platform. I think that a lot of times people will say, well, it's a private company. It can do whatever it wants. Now that the shoe has kind of flipped and they've got somebody in there that may not do what um, I guess you would say the mainstream folks want of Twitter, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that 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 can flip. And I always say that to people that yeah, are very no political about one it. way or the other. I'm much more of a moderate type of guy. Like anytime you've got something where, you know, you feel like you're winning in a victory, like just remember that 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 can flip and turn against you. So Yeah, no doubt. It should about be interesting. It. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, well they they made the bed and you know, Twitter's dealing with it. So Yep. Be very interesting. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that. And then lastly, we've got um, 
uh, House of Dragons is over. So uh, <laughs> first season is over. What an amazing season. Um, so many high points, but like this last episode, what did you think, Stomp? I was blown away and I was expecting, you know, I was, I was wishing for that, uh, the longest night type of episode with the epic battle, but I just didn't know what was coming, but I was happy with how they ended it. And it really goes to show you how many seasons they're probably going to get out of this. I mean, I can't even imagine what's coming with all these dragons and all these houses. And it's like, it's, I can imagine there's going to be a lot of CGI if they're going to have dragon battles and things, but I was just blown away with the story. I do have one complaint though. I, I do, I still think that some of the writing is a little sloppy. Like, um, I don't want to, this is a spoiler alert here, but at the very end when, um, uh, Viserys's son was tormenting the other person on the dragon, I thought he was going for the kill, but I was wrong. I think the writing could have been a little clearer and that happened a couple other times. Well, that's like, and it's interesting because the source material doesn't explicitly talk about the fact that, so what what you're basically talking about, and this is a spoiler, is that sort of Eamon, um, we call him Eamon One-Eye, he basically, um, his intent with chasing after Lucerus um, was to sort of scare him and freak him out, but not to kill him. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's this continuing theme that, there's during in the show they're sort of giving you the inside information that the book doesn't give you because the book is written from the perspective of speculation mm. so Not really huh. yeah so this whole thing is basically a war is going to start happening just because Amond was trying to sort of like run Lucerus off of his bicycle onto the side of the road but ended up running him into like a, an 18 wheeler and killing him um, <laughs> is sort of like the equivalent of it yeah the, the same thing happened with Allison in the last episode where uh, when when King Viserys passed away she confused Prophecy. him ranting about the prince who was promised with thinking that he meant that he wanted um his his son Aegon to become king so it's all this yeah. like comedy of errors really that's happening to cause all this drama yeah it's shakespearean in, yes. a, in a way it's it's yeah. good yeah. but yeah, anyway i'm i'm super disappointed so they haven't even started filming the next season they as haven't as even cast Cregan Stark. So um, the the older son, Jaceris, is on his way to Winterfell. And there's a whole probably, they can probably do two, three episodes up at Winterfell with everything that's going to go on with Jaceris and Cregan Stark, yeah. who's basically the king of the north or the, the, the protector of the north up there. Um, so I don't know when season two is going to take off. But yeah, they can easily do five seasons of this, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, when is that Jon Snow spur coming on? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Because that's probably much further along. So I'm anticipating that I'm never going to be deleting HBO Max. I know. <laughs> They're very sticky me, right now. Yeah, they've got me roped in. They're very sticky. Yeah, all right. All so uh, sponsors and Coffee Talk Stomp. All right. So we have a brand new sponsor, which is super cool. And Ta-da. the spon- so yeah, the sponsor's name is Fieldstone Kombucha. And I swear to God, I hope I'm saying that properly. But... Uh, you're going to be hearing about them uh, week to week here. And um, I've just tried it myself. I mean, kombucha is fermented drink, and apparently it's really good for your digestive system and this and that. And um, it's made out of organic black white tea, organic sugar. And this company is out of Bristol, Rhode Island, and they will basically deliver uh, 
the product to you. And uh, it's super, super cool. The contact's name is Emily. And um, she reached out to us thinking that we would be a great option for her to get this product out there. And apparently they listen to the podcast and are addicted to us. And I can tell you, I'm, I'm trying one of these now. I, I was going to save this for the uh, drink section, but I'm drinking one of their kombucha that they sent out. And it's a Farm Dreams Spicy Ginger. And I'm not, I'm not doing this because this is a sponsor. It's delicious. It's so great. So, um, yeah, we're going to put all the information up on the show notes. And um, I do have a little blurb that I wrote for them just to finish this up. So New England's premier craft kombucha ships to New Hampshire. Check out Fieldstone Kombucha online for delicious seasonal flavors in a kombucha style beloved of skeptics and enthusiasts alike. The perfect non-alcoholic post-hike drink. Shipping available for retail and wholesale. For more information, contact Emily Sheridan at Emily at FieldstoneKombuchaCo.com or visit them at FieldstoneKombuchaCo.com. Yeah. And when, of course, we have Spinner's Pizza. Oh, let me backtrack. Mike, have you tried kombucha? Yeah, I'm drinking it right now. Um, so first of all, a couple things. Yeah. One is I had my daughter, Megan. Um, we went through, and I pronounced kombucha like 17 times to get her approval to make sure that I was saying it correctly. <laughs> so we were like up on the kitchen table, and I was like, all right, I got a new sponsor. It's Fieldstone Kombucha. Did I pronounce it correctly? And she was like telling me no. And she's like, it's kombucha. And I was like, but it's not kombucha. And she's like, yeah, but you can't emphasize the A. Just say it quickly. And I was like, kombucha. And she's like, okay, that's that's okay. So kombucha. if I messed up the pronunciation, I'm blaming my daughter, Megan. Uh, but no, I'm <laughs> drinking a lemon gla- uh, grass oh. right now. So it's really good. It's smooth. Yeah. I was telling Emily when I talked to her, I was basically like, I tried kombucha from Trader Joe's like a few weeks ago. And I actually didn't like it because it was very sort of um, acidic and bitter. And she was like, no, this stuff is a lot smoother. And she's like, I've heard that a lot. She's like, check it out, try it out. So I've tried a couple of different flavors and I'm I'm having the lemongrass. And it's definitely correct. It's a lot. It's very smooth. Yeah. And uh, it's really good, actually. All right. Listen, since we're still talking about this, I'm going to go back. For all you lushes out there, me included, uh, with, you know, uh, Sober October winding up here, there are several recipes that she provides as well. So you can mix gin and botanical, highball ginger, which is whiskey, and uh, the Fieldstone Farm Dreams, which is that ginger. So, oh, lemongrass martini with vodka and Fieldstone's Heydays kombucha. So pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's great. Um, so yeah, and I think I'm going to grab some time with Emily to do a short segment to get a little bit more background. So we'll throw that into a future episode too. Yeah, let's do that. That sounds great. great. And uh, we have Spinner's Pizza, best pizza in Andover, Mass. So when you're coming home from your hike, drop by. It's right off of Route 93 in Dascom Road, uh, Andover, Mass. EMS, your Northeast go-to for outdoor gear, guidance, education, and more since 1967. Check them out at ems.com. And of course, a special thank you to at Reckless Brewing, where you'll enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch. Many 4K footers in less than 10 minutes from the five corners. <sighs> Almost passed out on that one. Seriously. Um, <laughs> any any coffee you want to share? Oh, yeah. Let's see what we have here. We have 
uh, literally someone donated a coffee after seeing Mike speak at a town meeting. Do you want to tell me about this? (laughs) Oh, Jesus. I'm outed. (laughs) I'm outed. Uh, I got to hear this this story. This is funny. So... (laughs) Stomp sends me this like coffee and he's like, what the hell is this? So I was like, oh, geez, I didn't want to get into the story, but I don't, I'm not politically uh, inclined person. So, uh, but every once in a while, like something will come up in my town that like, it'll get you fired up. So we have, we have the street in our town called Main Street, right? So, you know, Main Street, it's like the main road that goes through the town. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Pretty common. So like, it's basically the best way for me to get from my house to get into Newburyport where my daughter works and where I spend a lot of time is to take Main Street. So Main Street happens to be like where all the million dollar homes in the town live. Yeah. And, you know, they, they get a lot of traffic. It's Main Street. That's that's sort of the purpose of it. But I guess some of the neighbors got together and uh, decided that they had too much traffic that they wanted to deal with. And somehow they got the mayor of the town to get behind this idea that they were going to turn Main Street into a one-way Street, so that would force mm-hmm. everybody up onto this main highway road. So, um, I was not pleased with this idea. So the the town had like a public forum where you could speak. So I went and I just I just said, look, you know, you're you're forcing us to go into like a, a much more dangerous road, driving at a faster speed. It's a much nicer drive to go along Main Street and look at the river. And you know, we pay taxes, and you know, we shouldn't be privatizing a, a road at the, for the benefit of just a few people. So I basically just went and sort of gave my piece to the the town. Yeah, and it was kind of funny because the first thing I did is I was like, the first thing I said because you can speak in the microphone. I was like. Um, I've never been involved in a town political um, meeting before in my life, and it is as boring as I thought it was going to be. So everybody kind of cracked up at that. And then I went into my spiel, and then I was like, I'm done. Like, I didn't want to stick around and listen to a bunch of people just say what I had just said. So I was like, I got to go cook dinner. So apparently, as I was walking out, I (laughs) I said said that that to some guy. I was like, I got to go cook dinner. And it must have been whoever... (laughs) this coffee in was like you must be mike from the podcast like i don't know he didn't say anything to me but afterwards it turned out that they recognized me so (laughs) was it the i gotta cook dinner comment that's really funny yeah i was like i'm out of here i gotta cook dinner. i'm not sitting around watching like and it's painful because these town meetings like you know look i wasn't even that eloquent i was stumbling all over myself and i kind of do this podcast stuff so i I thought i was going to be a little bit better than i was but even i was like stumbling all over myself but a lot of these people get up there Mm -hmm. they get on the microphone and they don't know remember what they're going to say they're reading from a script and it's boring as hell so i was just like i said what i have to say there's a hundred people here they they got it covered i'm gonna leave yeah well that's good Yeah. yeah you gotta be active yeah, I still don't know what they're going to do. It sounds like this the mayor in our town um, still may be pushing it, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, well, good for you. It's good to see yeah. civic participation. Yeah, I'm fighting against the man. All these rich people are trying to get a one-way road for their benefit. And I'm like, I, 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 I want to drive on the rich people street. I want to go where the rich people are. Yeah, right? There you go. <laughs> Fight the power, man. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. We do have one other, Sarah. Uh, donated three and uh, she was listening while en route tuned from the Catskills so thank you Sarah very cool very cool and we have a few notable hikes if you tag Slasher we will consider you for notable hike of the week Steve Summits did Liberty and Flume Full Strength Coffee did the Mount Cabot Loop 
A. Folsom 33. Uh, let's see. Temperature check with great sunset shot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was trying to emphasize the, the cold weather that day. Haley 76 did a sunrise from Franconia Ridge. Uh, Justin Benz did Mount Flume, and that's 20 out of 48 for his uh, 48 uh, 4,000 footers. And this was another dad venture. And Jay Finley did 8 and 9 for Franconia Ridge. So right on, everybody. Good work. Awesome. I think this is a record 45 minutes before we even get to the show opening, but welcome to episode 80 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. This week, we are doing a segment on the history of Laconia and the Lakes region, and we're also dusting off our winter gear list and sharing our advice on snowshoes, spikes, crampons, boots, backpacks, and all the associated clothes needed for winter hiking. Uh, We've covered some of this stuff before, but we'll do a recap uh, for those of you thinking about getting into winter hiking. All this and some recent search and rescue news. I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Let's get started. <laughs> Perfect. So uh, we're going to skip the beer talk because we're both drinking uh, kombucha. Yeah. Hopefully and we're going to skip the reason hikes because we haven't been hiking. <laughs> we haven't been hiking, but I got a little quick um, history segment. Stomp. Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? Because I wasn't hiking, I did I did go back and I've been very painfully um, trying to make my way through Not Without Peril. So I picked this oh. book up and put it down like multiple times. Yep. Um, but I did find a chapter that I think is pretty cool, or not cool, but pr- very interesting. And it's the chapter that tells the story about the two young UNH students that hiked um, the presidential traverse in 1994, I believe, yeah. uh, Jeremy Haas and Derek Tinkham. And uh, this was a situation where Jeremy Haas was a, um, a pretty, a somewhat experienced hiker. They both attended UNH. Jeremy was a, um, a hike leader for the Outdoor Adventure Club at UNH who had done a couple of trips as a leader, had gotten people in trouble previously and was basically, you know, people complained about him and said like, look, he was pushing us too hard. He was reckless out there. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, he, he did some things on this, on, on these hikes that I, that we didn't feel comfortable with. So he was actually removed as a hike leader from the UNH Outdoor Adventure Club. And he then proceeded to continue to hike. He basically quit. Yeah. the outdoor club from that point on continued to hike he convinced uh, you know at some point afterwards whether it was a season later or sometime during that same season he convinced another friend of his so this is two 20 year old friends he convinced another person to do a presidential traverse with him so they started typically as you would start up valley way mm-hmm. um the choice that they made was not to bring a tent uh, they brought uh, i guess bivy winter bivy bags with them yeah. and they went pretty light with clothing as well they they were definitely of the mind of let's go light and fast um jeremy was much more experienced he claims that he told derek like hey this is going to be the most challenging physical thing you've ever done you need to make sure that you're up for it so on and etc so they made their way up to madison to be a valley way went over to adam's at some point, as they're making way, their way over to Jefferson, uh, very close to Jefferson, Derek is not doing well at all. Um, 
and Jeremy's moving forward. Now, I would imagine from the trip from Adams over to Jefferson, it sounds like that's when this kid Derek started kind of falling apart. Mm-hmm. Jeremy was pushing, pushing, pushing. And then uh, by the time they got to Jefferson, Derek was basically done. He's like, I can't go on anymore. I've got to go get into my bag. Conditions were worsening. It ended up being that uh, winds were hitting 120 miles an hour and the windshield was like insanely cold. Derek basically collapsed on near the summit of Jefferson and Jeremy basically decided to move on to Mount Washington, made his way to the the observatory over four. It took him like four hours. He basically left Derek there to die. Um, Did the the one that was failing stop at the Thunder Junction there? Is that yes. the story? All right. Yeah. I remember the story. Yeah. And then basically... Um, Jeremy made his way to uh, the observatory, knocked on the door. They let him in. Um, I think he was frostbitten on his hands, and, and but otherwise okay. Um, Derek basically was located the next day. The mountain rescue had to activate and um, make their way up to Caps Ridge. A number of the rescuers got in trouble as they were coming up. I think there was at least one or two of them that um, were, were in pretty bad shape. Um, during the rescue, one guy I think had to turn back, um, but eventually they, you know, they they located the body. They were able to bring it down, but it was a real struggle to bring it down. And mm-hmm. I think afterwards, some of the you know the, the newspapers interviewed this Jeremy kid, and he didn't come off very good. He was basically like, you know, Derek knew what he was signing up for. He knew that I told him that this was going to be dangerous, and you know, he accepted the risk on his own. I think the feedback that I read on Not Without Peril and on some of the old view from the top web um, message forums was basically that, you know, a lot of people felt that Jeremy should have been much more proactive around worrying about Derek's safety and that they had, they had a ton of bailout points that they could have got down to Grey Knob in a lot quicker time. Oh, sure. And they chose not to. <clears throat> and that, you know, a lot of people, even to this day, sort of feel like Jeremy, you know, is responsible for that that situation. Yeah. That's a shame. It's an awful story. Yeah. So anyway, what, I didn't what hike, year was but that? I did read. Yeah, nineteen ninety four. Okay, so pretty recent. Pretty recent, and you know they had some of the the rescue team had been interviewed by the author of Not Without Peril, and yeah. um, you know one of the quotes by Jeremy in the newspaper was, you know, "Do you regret anything?" And his answer was, "I wish I'd brought in mittens instead of my gloves." Yeah, you know, pretty. nothing about like, geez, I wish I turned back and tried to get to Gray Knob, or even like, even if I'm on the summit of Jefferson, I feel like I'd have to remember, but I feel like it would be quicker or safer to get back over to Gray Knob in that area versus making my way all the way over to Washington in those bad conditions. Absolutely. It's a really confusing lay of land between Jefferson and Clay and Washington in bad weather. You're so, you're so exposed too. Oh yeah, that field is, you know, I did that at night at one time um, during my hut to hut and that field from, you know, Jefferson over is just so damn confusing at, at times. Um, in bad weather, I, phew, no thanks. Yeah, yeah. I definitely feel like you can get from that like thunderstorm junction area over to, um, you know, a much more sheltered area. Yeah. But again, who knows how much experience they had going up into those areas. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. Man, terrible. Yeah. Crazy story, but, you know, 1994. Hopefully, you know, lessons we learned on that one. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. But anyway, Stomp, so moving on to sex, uh, segment one here, you want to do a little Weir's Beach Laconia history. So I'm yeah. going to let you take this. Yeah, like I said, I'm a late bloomer. I really had no idea how cool this area is. And, you know, just to start off right from the top, why is this related to hiking? It, it, it's a hot spot and it's local to many areas that you might want to hike. I mean, one of my favorite spots and Mrs. Stomp's as well would be Red Hill Fire Tower. You have the Gunstock Range, you know, Mount Major. And I honestly, Mike, what's the, what's the traverse that starts in Alton at Mount Major and heads over? There's like, I, I couldn't find the, uh, the name of this range, but uh, there are several yeah. mountains. It's the, so it's the Bell Naps. Yes. And okay. you basically, you know, what I, the sections that I've done is, you know, you start at Mount Major and then um, you make your way across all of these peaks. And the, you know, the, the trails, there's just a lot of like sort of intertwined trails, but basically right. you go to Mount Major, then you can go out to um, what they call Straight Back Mountain. And then from there, um, there's what's called Mount Anna. And then you can continue on to Mount Mac. And there's like a couple of different loops you can do. You can do like Mount Clem to Mount Rand. And I think I've done this big loop. And then you come over to West Quarry um, and then back down through Mount Major. I have not done the northern range, which is like Gunstock, Belknap, and Piper yeah. in, in that area there. So that's on my list of places to go. But I actually prefer to hike this in the spring so like when you're you're talking about like march april may when there's still like a lot of snow or sketchy weather in the the northern peaks mm -hmm. i really like the idea of getting down in the bell naps it's, it sort of dries out much more quickly and uh, is a much much more enjoyable place to hike in mm -hmm. when uh when the snow's melting because it's usually like you know ahead of the uh the 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 higher peaks by maybe about three or four weeks when it comes to snow melt yeah, and then you also have um, Larkham Far Away and Shaw and all those other peaks um, that are proximate to Weirs and Laconia. So there's yep. just a ton of stuff to do. Um, you know, obviously right now they're sort of closing down a lot of it because it's end of season, but uh, there's a lot of hiking. And uh, I mean, this this is like the go-to for Mrs. Stomp and I at the moment. It's amazing. But I did some digging on the history and this area dates back like literally 8,000 years BC when they had Native American tribes um, camping in the area. They would, they would camp in the summers. And this is probably the most interesting fact about this spot. You have Winnipesaukee, Lake Winnipesaukee, and then you have Pogas Bay, and it's connected by a little brook or a channel. Now, this channel would never freeze, apparently. So... The word where means somewhat of a like a basket or something that the Native Americans would use to uh, cross the channel and and capture fish with. So they would lay out these where baskets across the channel and catch their food um, for the winter and whatnot. So it's really fascinating. Um, you have history. Earlier histories, 1652, you have, you know, the gov governor Endicott of Massachusetts made his way up the Merrimack and came into the channel at Lake Winnipesaukee. They carved their initials on Endicott Rock, which is still there today. You can see this at a museum, and uh, there's a monument there. You have the tourist era, which 
starts in basically 1848 where you have uh, these multiple railroads making their way to the region. So the Boston, Concord, Montreal railroads all made uh, connections to this spot. And then you had the development of grand hotels, which ultimately would burn down in 1924. And then you have the whole history of the large steamships. Um, in 1849, you had um, the Lady of the Lake steamship, which made her port there at the Weirs. And this would continue on until 1893. In 1872, you had railroads coming in for you know tourist railroads, like just um, regional tours. And they would see upwards of 60,000 passengers per year. It's pretty neat. So today, um, you know, you still have the Mount Washington, which does the tours. You have the Winnipesaukee and Pemigewasset Railroad that does tours, and that's connected to the Hobo Railroad, which you may have seen in Lincoln. And um, mm-hmm. I believe uh, yeah, they, they have other locations in, as well. Is that over in Conway, if I'm mistaken? I'm not quite I th- sure. I don't. I think the Conway Scenic is a separate separate entity. Really? Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's just a little bit of the weirs and um, what can you do there today? Uh, there's just so much to do. Obviously, there's the fun spot. There's the Mount Washington. When Mrs. Stomp and I made it there on Sunday, they had just finished their season, and on the Saturday night, they had a uh, Halloween grand ball on the on the ship. It's amazing. So uh, it's amazing. You have great food. You have the Tower Hill restaurant there, which is you know it's it's more of a. It reminds me of like a country western bar, but they have live entertainment. You have fireworks. You have a drive-in theater, golfing, horseback riding. Incredible. I mean, we'll, we'll give you the links. There's a lot to see, a lot to do, but I'm fascinated by it. And my biggest question is, why are there seagulls hundreds of miles away from the ocean? And that I have not figured out yet, but I hope to get to the bottom of that one. <laughs> oh, the seagulls in Winnipesaukee? Yes. You know, it's like minus the salt in the air. It's exactly like being at Salisbury Beach or any other waterfront place yeah, yeah. on the ocean. But there are seagulls there. Well, they're scavengers, so there's got to be like, you know, there's water and there's trash. So yeah. I think that that's probably the attraction. I would think so. Yeah, they live there and uh, I think they're there year round. Yeah. And I think, again, just going back to, you know, tying this into hiking, like you've got the bell naps that are on the, like the southwest part of the lake. Then when you've got like the kind of the northwest section of the lake, you've got the Squam Range, which is Morgan Percival and uh, um, yes, yeah. you know, that, that range. And then to the northeast of the lake is the uh, the Ossipee Range, which is sort of like Lake of the Clouds. So you've got like Mount Shaw, you've got Mount Roberts, you've got Black Snout. And, and that whole area there. So there's a lot of um, really amazing viewpoints of the lake from all of those different hikes. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we just did Mount Webster a couple of weeks ago. So you've got the overlook there, uh, southern end of the Squam. So yeah, great point. I didn't add that because I thought it was just maybe a little too far from Laconia, but what's what's the difference? Yeah, yeah, we're talking about it. Um, yeah. Anyway, 
anyway. But yeah, Laconia is fun. My wife's cousin has a house right on the lake in um, Paugus Bay, I believe. Yeah. And it's fun to kind of go through. We go through like the, we go through that little like um, bridge that gets you across from Weir's Beach, which is which is a fun thing to do. That's um, exactly, that's the channel I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then you can see, like, eventually we get over, like, Governor's Island and that whole area there, which is really cool. Yeah, it's so great. And and I, I can't forget this. Next year is the 100th anniversary for Bike Week, so that's going to be a little wild. Yeah, I've never been to Bike Week. Never been there. I went once. I went during COVID, and it was a little weird. It was a lot calmer, but, um, you know, it's not exclusively bikes. It's also antique vehicles. And uh, some beautiful older cars. So yeah, it's it that might be something to sort of pencil into your calendar. It's going to be a heck of a time. Yeah, I'll pencil in my calendar to stay away. <laughs> I'm all set with the crowds. So <laughs> okay, well if you can handle Las Vegas, you could probably handle Laconia. But true, true. Although I can only handle it for two days. But you know. some people like that. I, I will. It is interesting. Like I don't have that in me. Like there's some people that are just very happy being in like that sort of crowded environment, like going to a tailgate, going to like a sports game, being at a concert. Like I don't have any of that in me. Like I don't like being in those crowds. Like I'm like, I'm constantly like, okay, where can I find a place where I can get away from everybody? Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So good stuff. Where's beach? Where's beach? Slasher's hiking topic of the week. Very good. So on to segment two, Winter Gear 101. So we got an email from a listener and he had asked whether or not we could break down our winter gear for for the audience. And I know that we did, I think it's episodes 31 and 32 or 32 and 33. It's basically intro to winter hiking. So we did a deep dive with Karen and Rebecca on their gear. So I'll relink those Um those shows so that you can do a real deep dive. And I mostly just wanted to kind of go through a refresher of what's in my backpack and then stomp. You can add to it if if you want as well. Uh, But winter hiking is coming up here. So you want to start thinking about what gear you're going to be using and what your approach is going to be for winter hiking. In particular, if you're new to winter hiking, um, a couple of things I wanted to cover before we get into the gear is just sort of management around trailheads and the road situation in the whites and parking and that whole thing is is much different than it is in the summertime. So you've got to deal with oftentimes trailhead parking lots that may not be plowed or they may be semi-plowed. Uh, you've got to deal with roads that are closed. So normally a hike that you could get right on the trail on might require a two or three mile road walk. So you have to factor those in. Um, so you always want to assume the worst. I always tell people, make sure that you have a, um, a car battery charger that's available, either that or at minimum jumper cables, but don't rely on somebody else to be around to jump your car. Mm-hmm. Make sure you have a shovel, 
Um, I would say, ideally, if you're in a car, don't mess around with two-wheel drive cars. If you're going to go deep, make sure you got four-wheel drive. Make sure you have um, like a snow rake for clearing off your car. And then um, I always sort of have like a, a piece of wood or um, something that I can jam under my tires just in case I get in trouble with something. So uh, just keep that in mind that you definitely want to have your like sort of at the trailhead emergency kit. Yeah, your foot mats work pretty good too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the, the car mats or whatever you need um, to get some traction. And, you know, you just can't rely on anyone else being around. And especially like, you know, if you're going hiking and it's snowing out or something, like you might come back and your car may have a foot of snow on it. And, you know, conditions can be completely different than when you left. Yeah, I've not done the battery pack in the car, but I, I could understand that being handy. I mean, I, I just sort of default to having a, a good battery up here you gotta have a killer battery um, yeah 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 unlike me who just like doesn't pay attention to it and like just lets my battery die yeah i, I you know like there, there are some good options so i wonder if that like jackery brand might be decent uh geez they they power the mixer here my dj stuff for hours um, yeah so yeah there are some good affordable battery packs for sure yeah, yeah. So keep that in mind. And then with your personal electronics, um, I always recommend that you bring a um, a battery backup, like the Anchor uh, battery backup. Uh, make sure that you're cracking open hand warmers at the beach. I usually will open my hand warmers like 10 minutes before I get to the trailhead. I'll shake them out. I'll leave them in my car seat. And then they're nice and warm by the time I start. I'll stick uh, a hand warmer or two inside a plastic bag and wrap my phone in there. Um, make sure you keep your electronics close to your body. Uh, don't rely on electronics if you can. Um, make sure you get a paper map um, and all that stuff. But just basically, just don't expect that your phone's going to stay alive if you don't have any sort of strategy to have like a, a backup battery or hand warmers or something to keep it warm. Yeah, those toe warmers work really well. They yep. stick to your phone. So that's been a lifesaver for me. That's sort of yep. like the first thing I do before I get out. Yeah, and I like um, any sort of coats or uh, fleece jackets that have like those chest pockets. Oh, yeah. So I'll typically use that um, to put my phone in and then I'll like have, I usually use the hand warmers. I'll put one hand warmer on either side of the phone and then leave it at that. So Yeah, and minimize um, use. Just don't yeah. use it so much. Yeah, exactly. I like to take pictures though, Stomp. <laughs> like to take selfies for the gram um, yeah exactly so i wanted to start so with gear i want to start off basically what i use is whenever you're thinking about gear like start with the traction so starting from the bottom and working our way up i guess so um you've got three main types of traction you've got what you call micro spikes you've got snowshoes and you got crampons so micro spikes basically the two most common brands you're going to be dealing with are going to be katula micro spikes which are um, basically a rubber gasket that wraps around your your boots or whatever footwear you have and it's got metal cleats on it that are sort of rounded but semi-sharp that will give you traction on any level of ice. Those are typically pretty good for trails that are already packed down and you're walking bare boot. Uh, they're pretty good for um, standard ice that's not sort of long and extended and steep. And, you know, you typically want to make sure that you got some backup gear for those. I typically will either bring like, um, um, what do you call it, zip ties just in case they break. Um, I'll bring like a little 
a little clamp that I can squeeze metal back together to, to help me with because they do tend to break. The second type of spike that you will see is hill sounds. Hill sounds tend to be a little bit more aggressive. Uh, they're sort of in between what we call a micro spike and a, a crampon. crampon. I feel like they're starting to get more and more popular because they're sort of the best of both worlds and they let you have a little bit more comfort if you're dealing with like steeper ice or more extended or aggressive situations. So I think you tend to use hill sounds over microspikes, right? I do because the tooth on the uh, the cleat, the cleat tooth is so much bigger and longer. It just, um, it gets you over glare ice and this and that i think like the the catulas tend to i i use catulas but it'll be earlier in the season or below tree line that type of thing but the hill sounds are just like you said just all encompassing they, t- they tend to work great on everything yeah yeah so i'd say like everybody should be wearing spikes i typically will keep two pairs of spikes over the over the course of a season um, you can sharpen them. You got to be kind of careful with them because the, if you if you're aggressive with them, you know the metal's soft, and you can really um, you know you can really damage them if you're too aggressive. But like a quick a quick hit with the Dremel tool, or uh, more preferably, I think is sort of a hand sharpener. Typically, with the micro spikes, they're much more rounded, whereas the hill sounds are more sharpened. I think. Yeah, and I've messed around with sharpening with my Dremel. And I do think there's a science that we do not fully understand in terms of angle and this and that. These companies have done their homework because when you start fiddling with the uh, the sharpness and this and that, your traction does alter. I found that for sure. So I think when you yeah. get to the point where you're you're whittling down your 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 spikes with a Dremel, it's probably time to get a new pair. Yeah, and they're not super expensive. I think no. Catulas and Hill Sounds are somewhere in the $80 range, so it's almost better off just sucking it up and buying a new uh, a new set and then using the uh, the old pair as what we call rock spikes, which is sort of like when the season's <laughs> ending, you would, you know, you'd use those and you don't care that you're banging them up. But, Absolutely. Um, so the, the second type of traction that you're going to want is snowshoes. Um, I use uh, MSR evos which are um sort of the most basic version of msr snowshoes that you can get um you can get um, more expensive versions typically what differentiates the basic snowshoes from more advanced snowshoes is that the the more advanced snowshoes will have a, what we call an ankle lift um or a televator and basically what this is is just sort of a, a metal piece that flips upward that gives you um, a better angle when you're going upward. Basically, what it'll do is it'll give you like an inch or two lift on your ankle so that when you're going uphill, it feels like you're actually walking straight. So it's definitely beneficial. I don't use, I just have used the same pair of Evos for the last five or six years. Um, you know, there's other other brands, there's Tubbs version of uh snowshoes you know all the main brands i think work pretty well but what you really want to do is make sure that you've got a true uh, mountaineering snowshoe so msr tubs uh there's a couple of other brands that i'll link in the show notes uh but mine have worked pretty rock solid for the last five, i think i've had the same pair for five years now hmm yeah that's great yeah, yeah me too I yeah, have the. Um, I'm sorry. I have the uh, Denali Classic, old school. I mean, they're they're the only complaint I have is the binding system. It's an old ratchet system. Um, I'm intrigued by the new Bower system, which is just more of a cable system that you can. T- 
twist a little knob and it tightens right up press the knob and it loosens right up so yeah and my snowshoes are the old sort of um like um plastic strap msr oh Um, yeah me too yep and they're fine the thing that i recommend for people is that uh, they come with clips and typically like out of the box if you get these old msrs they'll typically have like one clip to to maintain the uh the straps and i typically will recommend that people get um extra clips and and double up on the clip so you have one on either side of your your foot and that way you've got like your 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 straps won't flap around and then you also have an extra if you need it or somebody else breaks you've got you've got extra and then i always take zip ties zip ties can be helpful if you need to adjust your straps on snowshoes they are helpful if your gasket breaks on your um um, on your your micro spikes and typically you want to plan on carrying both snowshoes and micro spikes um, hill sounds on every height that you do that's basically the kind of the go-to assumption is is that snowshoes and micro spikes will be on every hike typically if a trail is packed down really well especially like if it hasn't snowed for like four or five days and you're hiking on a sunday at a, a popular place probably able to get away with micro spikes you might even be able to get away with like leaving your snowshoes in the car typically like um, from an etiquette perspective people will expect that if the trail is anywhere like loose snow or anything like that the expectation is is that you should wear snowshoes to keep the trail packed down um, if you are going to use micro spikes and you are like sinking in on a trail, what's going to end up happening is that you're going to leave footprints behind. And then if it rains or, or it, it warms up and then freezes back over, those leave what's called post holes and people get mad about it. Personally, with a post hole, I feel like as if you're carrying snowshoes and you're dealing with a trail that's got a bunch of post, post holes in it, it doesn't really matter because with the snowshoes, you're going to go right over them anyway. Sure. Makes sense. Yeah, I, I, the only qualification to this is that if it's like pre-season and it's just like an inch or two, just stick with your spikes. Yeah, there's no yeah. reason to drag out your snowshoes. But once you're in the heat of winter, then yeah, it's a good idea to have them. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the last bit of traction is crampons. So crampons are what you would um, think of for like true mountaineering. So these are aggressive spikes that strap onto your boots. Um, I use, you know, there's a bunch of different brands. Black uh, Black Diamond has some. Uh, I use what's called the Gravel G5, which is a pretty uh, inexpensive crampon. I've had the same pair for like uh, probably about five or six years. Typically, you won't need to use crampons unless you're in a situation where you're hiking like the Northern Presidentials and you're dealing with like very, crampons typically would be used if you're going um, up a traditional mountaineering route like Lion's Head or something like that, you're typically, instead of using snowshoes, you'll break out a trail using your crampons versus snowshoes in those really steep winter uh, mountaineering routes. And then, um, you know, if you're going up like a, a trail, like I went up Airline last winter and it was like crazy ice for like you know, a half a mile of ice steep. Mm-hmm. That's the type of environment where you would want to use crampons when it's been a lot of melt and then a lot of ice that doesn't have any snow on it and you're exposed. That's when you would use really aggressive crampons. Yeah, and make sure you know how to use them. Don't just buy them and go for a hike. 
you need to practice walking with them sideways forward, not catching your leg with the teeth of the crampons. You can really hurt yourself. You can stumble and trip and get yourself in a really bad situation. So just make sure you know how to use them for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a good point because the first time I used crampons, I was hiking up uh, Lowe's Path. We were going up to Gray Knob Cabin mm. and I didn't know... I was the first time winter hiking. I had crampons on, and I didn't realize that when you step off of the, that's another thing you'll deal with if you haven't done winter hiking. Is there's this thing called the monorail, which is like the pack down section of the trail. Yeah. If you step off of that a little bit, you can sink. And I actually was wearing crampons. I sunk up to like my thigh, and then your natural instinct is to like dig in from one foot to the other and I actually ripped my leg wide open with my crampons like right at the very start of the hike so yep. you got to be very careful with them absolutely yeah it was a bloody mess the whole weekend it was a disaster so you just you actually dug into your skin yes yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. I pretended like nothing happened because I was too embarrassed to like tell anyone that I did it yeah because I, I have plenty, plenty of holes in my pants because of the damn things like you end up yeah. face planting if you're not careful yeah Exactly. Um, all right. So moving on to backpacks. So my advice on backpacks. So I have two different winter backpacks. I've got a 50 liter Deuter backpack that I used for years. Mm -hmm. um, I recently upgraded to a um, Hyperlite Mountain Gear. I think that's what it's called. Um, whatever the Hyperlite backpack, which is a 50 liter. Um, I use that for like summer backpacking and I typically will use that for winter hiking um day hikes you know it's, it's got plenty of room i can strap my back my um my snowshoes to it pretty well and you know i've got everything pretty much dialed in there but you know any i would say any backpack that's between 35 and 55 liters will do you good i just prefer to have a little bit more room because in the winter conditions i, I don't like to mess around with like having stuff crammed into my backpack i, I prefer to have a little bit of extra space Yep, I agree. Yeah. Yep. I'm using my giant 115 right now already, <laughs> just just for the space. And as I go into the season, it gets a little more cramped and tighter. But right now, it's great. It's just easier to get stuff. Yep. Yeah, Stomp doesn't mess around with the backpack size. He's, he's got a huge backpack. But yeah. Search and Rescue is a little bit different. little. Um, yep. <laughs> And, but yeah, any backpack will do. You know, you've got the typical brands: Osprey, Gregory, Deuter, um, these ultralight packs from like Granite Gear, and um, um, you know, take your pick. Anything will do. I do see a lot of people more and more utilizing the running backpacks, even in the winter. I haven't looked at the uh, the fast pack, so I have a fast pack twenty five liter. I think that they sell a bigger version of the fast pack that you might be able to get away with. Again, I just much prefer to have a little bit bigger backpack so that I can fit all my gear into it without messing around. But you can certainly stuff everything that I'm talking about into a 35 liter and, and still get away with it. It's just, it just would be crammed in there. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be tough. Uh, as far as boots go, I typically would recommend any kind of winter boot that has a 400 gram insulate uh, um, rating. And you know, right now I am using Keen Revel 4s, but basically any brand of like Keen, Merrill, Salmon, um, you know, there's a bunch of different brands. If you go on Section Hiker, that's typically what I'll go on and you just Google like 
top 10 winter hiking boots for men and women and you can get all the brands but um, ultimately what you want is um, I think a, a a real boot. I don't mess around with the trail runners in snowy conditions, uh, but a real boot, I prefer to have something that's got a little bit of width on it. You do want to make sure that there's a hook on it for the gaiters. And um, ideally, like I said, 400 Thinsulate is the the rating that I would use for cold weather. It'll keep your feet nice and warm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I always remind people, like, don't tie your boots super tight. Circulation's critical for keeping your feet warm in the winter. So right. you're much better off keeping your boots a little bit looser than you think so that your circulation keeps flowing with your, uh, within your feet. Yeah, good point. Yep. Um, next thing you want to consider is gaiters. So gaiters are um, these things that sort of wrap around your boots in your pants and what they'll do is they'll keep the snow out of your out of the top of your boots and uh, typically you want to use um, like a Gore-Tex gaiter you can use like a nylon gaiter it really depends on what you want to do I preferred the outdoor research uh, I think they're called um, crocodile gaiters mm-hmm. I think that's what I have you you have another version I forget you have it's like a, a nice black and orange pair yeah I would, sound. I would um, I mean I I went with the Hillsound Armadillo LT Gator and it, you know it's listed now for like 69 bucks when I bought it it was like in the 30s it was mm-hmm. the cheapest gator there but it fits perfect and it hugs your calf and it doesn't sag that's my biggest complaint about gators they they drop and I have found that the Hillsounds are, are sort of firm enough they, they reinforce the zipper and it just seems to keep the gator up by your knee which is super important yeah, yeah, and that's my big issue with like the like you'll get these gaiters off of like Amazon. They're like more of a nylon like raincoat type of gear, type of material, yeah. and those are the ones that will drop down because they're not stiff enough to sort of stand up on their own. But like yours are like really good that way, good and decent. then the uh, the outdoor research ones that are Gore Tex, those don't tend to drop either because they're sort of a much stiffer material. Yeah, so that's why I do prefer like anything that's sort of Gore Tex version of gators tends to not sag like you're talking about right my hill sounds have gone on to probably six years now one oh yeah. yeah i remember you when you got those yeah and i got those up in lincoln at lahoots yeah. they have a they have yeah. a great selection by the way actually that's something we should talk about at some point before we stop is where can you get the stuff in new hampshire Are yeah yeah i mean EMS? obviously like eastern mountain sports lahoots yep. um yeah plenty of places that you can go absolutely yeah. Um, so moving on to some other stuff, jackets. So typically what I recommend, and and again, anytime I think about this stuff, I want to give a shout out to my friend Jonathan who showed me the ways of winter hiking. I owe him a debt of gratitude for infinity for this stuff. But um, typically what you want is three jackets. I typically will bring a... Um, a fleece jacket or a soft shell jacket. So I think for my fleece, I have just a like a... Um, like a regular old zip fleece. It might be a Columbia or something like that. Um, if I bring the fleece, then I'll keep the soft shell home. If I bring the soft shell, I'll keep the fleece home. But I have a soft shell jacket that is a, um, I think it's an outdoor research um, Ferrossi jacket. And it's, you know, it's a soft shell material, which works out nice. Um, I typically will bring that as my first layer. And then I have a, a down jacket. So I use an Eddie Bauer Evertherm jacket, but you know anything will do. I think Patagonia has got good nano puff jackets. Um, yeah. 
Mountain Hardware has got the the Ghost Whisperer. You've got all kinds of da- any kind of down jacket you can imagine, and then typically the third would be a shell. So I have an Eddie Bauer, I think backcountry shell. Stomp. Mm-hmm. You have a really nice like camo shell that you use, right? Yeah, that's actually that was a gift um, by a friend of mine, but that was military grade Gore Tex uh, from his days in the service. But um, yeah, that outer shell is is key. Um, you know, it's not necessarily insulated, but if you can keep that wind off you and the rain and or the rain, then you're in great shape. If you have a decent mid or uh, first layer on, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's typically, like I said, I recommend three jackets. The fleece slash soft shell, and then um, the down jacket, and then the the regular hard shell. And you know, typically you'll have all three of those on uh, if you're above tree line and windy conditions. But a lot of times, all three of those jackets may be sitting in uh, sitting in your backpack. That's why I always tell people like make sure that you you know have plenty of room in your backpack because a lot of times when you're generating heat going uphill, you're going to be in a base layer, which typically for base layer for me is like a long sleeve. You know, I got a bunch of these just shirts from Eastern Mountain Sports. I've got some REI ones. I've got some Columbia ones. Whatever works for base layer um, is fine. I typically prefer to have like a wicking base layer, n- nothing cotton, obviously. And then same thing with the long underwear and usually serves me pretty well. Yeah. And my only comment on that outer layer again is spend the money. It's important to have the ventilation if you can get a really decent jacket with, you know, armpit zips or side zips, you can really keep yourself warm and dry, keep the wind off of you, but also let that condensation and heat out so you're not getting soaked underneath. That's really important. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, the heat regulation, regulating your sweat is like the most important thing for for people. You don't want to generate a lot of sweat in your base layer obviously like you want a wicking base layer but you don't want to get soaking wet when you're hiking in the winter that's your biggest risk because that's when hypothermia can 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 really creep in the other thing about like the the layers is if you're if you're going to stop anywhere you want to make sure that you put your layers on immediately to retain that heat if you're not moving yeah agreed yeah um gloves sort of the same concept as the jacket i bring three layers so you want a liner glove um i typically will bring like a uh, like a a wool like rag mitt or um like you know a, a sort of a mitt with finger holes in it and then my outer layer will be a outdoor research gore-tex uh, gore-tex shell so again it's like the the liner gloves which you're using most of the time then i use the the mittens wool mittens and then um the outdoor research gore-tex shell sometimes i'll swap it out and i'll bring like these these heavy duty eddie bauer like work gloves yeah as well and i'll use those sometimes but i'll typically bring like a couple of liner gloves with me too because those do get sweaty and you want to swap those out sure uh, yeah, I prefer mittens myself, just for that fact of having that room and you know better circulation. Yeah, and and can yeah. I just say one other thing? Um, we haven't mentioned the fact that you should have probably a couple options for shirts. If your shirt gets soaked, you want to you want to have a second backup, but you need a place to put your damp stuff. So whether you have like a a dry bag or a trash bag, have a location in your pack 
that you can put your wet stuff that won't get your dry stuff soaked. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's why I will um, typically bring like multiple pairs of gloves and oh, that's a absolutely. good point. Like I'll I'll um I'll typically have like a um just a little like um stuff sack that I'll I'll dump all my old junky gear into. Yeah. So little tips. Um as far as hats go, typically like I'll bring like one or two hats with me. I typically will bring like a wool hat. There's nothing in particular like that you have to worry about any any sort of warm hat will do. I actually prefer to bring a headband with me. So I've got some nice sort of headbands that will go over my ears, but they'll keep the top of my head cold. And a lot of times like I will, I'll keep the headband on. And then when I get too hot, I just pull it down around my neck and it just stays there and I can just pull it back up. And then I really don't use the full hat unless I'm above tree line or I'm getting really cold. Yeah. Oh, I get too hot with a hat. That's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's why I like the headband is I can start off like I don't like my ears cold. Yeah. But like so I'll start off with the headband and then once I'm warmed up, I'll take the headband around my neck. And then if I get cold again, I can always just pull up the headband. But like I don't like messing with the hat too much. You know what's neat? Um, Like Minus 33 makes a really great beanie. There are other brands Mm -hmm. out there, but Minus 33 makes a nice one. Beanies are nice because they're not heavy like a thick wool hat. They're super tight. Um, geez, even the White Mountain Endurance Crew um, had great, great beanies. And that keeps the heat in. Yeah, yeah. And that's mostly what I use. Like with my hat is it's a beanie. It's not a heavy. So if I have my headband and then I have a beanie, like that's basically all I need. And then if I get really cold, I can put my my um, hood on my, my down jacket too. Yeah. Um, other stuff that you want to think about is you always want to have goggles with you. Um, typically with goggles, you want to make sure that you keep those cold and in, in your bag um, or sort of I tend to put them in the top of my backpack if I can, but keep them cold until you're ready to put them on because what you don't want to do is put goggles on like your, it's not like skiing where you put them on your forehead and you know you don't want to have them on your forehead where you're generating heat because what's going to happen is condensation is going to build up on the inside of the goggles. You get above tree line, you go to put them on, you can't see, you basically have no goggles. So you always want to keep them cold. Um, I do tend to, um, you know, if I need to, I will scrape out the ice on the inside if something works out. If I'm doing something like Northern Presidentials and I know I'm going to be up above tree line for an extended period of time, I'll bring two pairs of goggles just as a backup. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was like my one comment I was ready to throw in there. Two, yep. absolutely two. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, balaclava, something around your neck that goes into your, um, covers your nose and whatnot. Absolutely take two of those if you're going to be out all day because the first, you know, the first time you use it, it's going to be full of snots and sweat and all kinds of nasty. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> Um, and then I always recommend make sure you got sunglasses on, you know, not, not, you don't always need to have goggles. Like if you're above tree line and it's really nice out and there's not a lot of wind, you don't need to put your goggles on, but you will need sunglasses. The, the snow, the sun reflecting off of the snow can be devastating and you can go snow blind if you don't, if you don't have uh, protection for your eyes. Yeah. Or you can have a bunch of floaters like me when in your fifties because you never wore glasses. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
so that's sort of the big ticket items there. And like I said, I'll link all this stuff in the show notes. And then as far as like food and drink goes with liquid, um, you want to make sure that you've, you, when you bring water, that you purchase a, uh, like an insulation sleeve for your Nalgene or outdoor research sells these so you can pick them up pretty easily with uh, like an insulated sleeve. Uh, I typically will fill my water up with like hot water to start off with, put it in the insulation and it'll stay pretty warm um, through the beginning of your hike. I typically will also bring a thermos with me of hot liquid that's more so as a safety uh, tool just in case like somebody's suffering from hypothermia or something like that I'll, I'll save that for uh, emergency purposes sometimes I'll have half of it when I get up top and I'm not moving um, but yeah mm-hmm. you definitely want to make sure that you you don't let your liquid freeze correct and that that leads me to a little trick that um, the teal goat taught me and it's awesome all you, you know if you have a Nalgene bottle if you keep it upside down the bottom freezes first so your you know the the spigot where you drink from is not going to freeze so that's a really Mm -hmm. simple you know just based on natural physics so if you keep it upright that cap can freeze unless it's uh in you know a protective cover or something of that nature yep yep that's it and then uh couple of other sort of basic things that you have to be aware of with winter hiking is um, sometimes you will have to break trail. Typically, if you are out there and, um, you know, it's just been a fresh snow, you'll be responsible for breaking trail. If you're in a group and you've got to break trail, typically what you want to do is rotate through. So you just like um, the Tour de France, you'll have somebody breaking trail in the beginning, two people walking behind them. Those two people have a nice, easy time. First person should step aside, let the other two people start, you know, breaking trail. So you're constantly sort of rotating forward on who's doing the work for breaking trails. That way you're saving energy. Um, you want to make sure that if it is a day where it's a recent snow, bring your snowshoes. Don't just post post hole with with uh, with micro spikes. The only time that you should be sort of breaking trail without snowshoes is if you're doing like a real mountaineering trail like lion's head they'll open that up with like uh, crampons typically it's a better way to do it it's safer just because of the steepness mm-hmm. um but that's it i recommend finding a friend that's got winter hiking experience so that you can start off slow and they can teach you sort of all the gear that you need and um you know take a look at like the hiking buddies group to see if there's any sort of beginner hiking trips i am going to post a um a hike with mike trip for the winter on either like well sticky or musalaki so i'm going to put that out there on the hiking buddies group this week nice. to see and, and i'm going to basically just say like anybody that hasn't done winter hiking that wants to learn to do winter hiking can come with me to to you know do a day of like sort of learning that'd be fun yep so keep an eye out for that we'll see if anybody wants to hike with me i don't know maybe they won't oh i bet um, I have one final addition. Yep. What should you have in your pack if you get injured? I have a couple items. Um, foam pad so that you're not oh, yeah. laying down on snow, getting cold really, really fast. I carry I carry two of those hand-sized bivy sacks. Um, you know, they, they cover your body. They, they reflect like 80, 90% of your heat back. Um, you know, when I go on missions, that type of thing, I will actually have a tarp in my bag and a couple connector 
bungee straps and that type of thing just to make shelter out of the wind. Some people I know have bothy bags, which are like those kindergarten parachutes that you can pull over yourself and, and make an enclosed tent. Um, any comments on that, Mike? Yeah, no, that's a good point is those um, sort of the thermorest um easy rest pads those closed foam pads like those will um you know they're a lifesaver like that gives you you know that along with those emergency bivy from solo that uh, that you're talking about like that can give you six to eight hours of survival time in a winter situation to to give search and rescue time to get to you for sure Um, versus if you don't have a foam pad you sit down on the snow regardless of what clothes you have you know you're you're going to be exposed to cold and you're going to get your body's going to get cold very quickly uh, so that little bit of insulation that a foam pad gives you will be significant and you always want to use that when you're sitting down um and yeah, the the emergency bivy is huge as well. Yeah, I mean, we're not even touching upon backpacking, but if you're backpacking, hopefully you would have a stove and propane and like, that's a whole other topic, but those are the basics. Yeah. I mean, even if you're going out with people uh, in the winter, just have that stuff with you. Yeah, yeah. And that's the other thing too, is one other thing I would say, Stomp, is there are times where I will bring the zero degree sleeping bag on a day hike. Oh yeah, um, sure. If you're in a situation, like I met me and my friend Tom, who I just finished, he just finished his 4,000 footer. Like we did a hike up Jackson one time where the yep. weather was so cold. I think that was, it was probably the, the, it was colder than the time that me and you did that Liberty Flume Traverse. Yeah. It was like the wind chill was insane. And I just brought it because I was like, you know what, just in case something happens, like it's going to be so cold, like people could you know, get in big trouble within an hour or two. So I brought my zero degree bag thinking that I've got my insulation, my ground insulation. I got a sleeping bag. If something happens to either one of us, Good that's going to go. give us four to eight hours of survival time, which is what we need. Yeah. And they're so light. It's like literally some of these newer bags are so light. Yeah. I mean, well, mine's pretty heavy, but e- even like if I'm doing like a, a day on like Adams and Madison or something like that, like I may bring, um, my zero degree bag in my pack just as a just in case because not even just for me but just thinking like okay if somebody else is in trouble this gives them the extra time that they might need to survive to for a search and rescue team to get to them yeah great yeah. stuff man and just i mean we can go on forever with this but i always have a, a locator beacon i don't use the any return anything like that but uh with the sketchiness of the phones and how quickly they can die i do have a means uh to contact uh rescue if i need it so good stuff good stuff so we'll include links to the old uh, shows that we did with Karen and Rebecca that have a much more detailed gear list and those will also be like um, there's more hints about like clothes and ideas for women as well because unfortunately like me and Stomp are not women so I can't really um, get too specific about that but Rebecca and, and Karen were really helpful about like ideas for that and Rebecca posted some articles that she's written in the past so she can you know, she, she can definitely point you the way for, for clothes. <laughs> yeah, listen, we're getting tight. Do you want to just do like the highlights of these search and rescues? Yeah, why don't we do the local stuff and we'll wait for the, the national stuff for next show? Sounds good. 
Okay. So um, this first story here, unfortunately, is um, regarding a deceased hiker that uh, that passed away. And I am waiting for the the link to work here. Stop. Yeah, it was up in the Hancock region, uh, Cedar Brook Trail. This was last Saturday morning. Um, we had a, a training going on concurrently uh, that started that morning and halfway through the training we were interrupted by a call somebody in medical distress on Cedarbrook Trail um, long story short uh, this ended up being a recovery um, and a, a, a New Hampshire Air National Guard uh, helicopter was requested but um, once they arrived once the rescuers arrived on scene you know it was it was too late so the army national guard was actually diverted to another emergency at mount avalon if you want to take over yes yeah so um yeah i guess apparently they um they had another medical emergency on avalon that um that they, yeah but there's no the problem stomp is there's no detail about the mount avalon rescue in this yeah okay I'm not sure so there's nothing for me to take over uh, yeah I apologize for that over. well I, I'm not going to add information that may not be public um, at this point but I, I do know that the second was not a recovery it was just it was just an orthopedic situation I believe so um, yeah. yeah but interesting day all around it's um, all we really know yeah, it's tough. I mean, we were just talking about like that Cedar Brook Trail and like Thoreau Falls in that area. I mean, that just doesn't get a lot of traffic. So I would imagine that this person was probably a pretty hardcore hiker if they were out in that area. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a very deep, remote area for sure. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, okay, so then the next one here is an injured hiker on Mount Chikora. Um, this happened on Saturday, October 22nd, shortly before 5.30. Fishing Game was notified um, of an injury on Champney Falls Trail. So this was a 36-year-old gentleman from Massachusetts hiking with a group of six friends. Around 4.15, they were descending the trail from the summit when uh, this gentleman injured his ankle. So they were about two and a half miles from the trail. That side of the kank is difficult because there's no cell service up there. Mm -hmm. So um, it looks like two of the members had to hike out and they drove to service so it's very difficult like you're on that Champney Falls trailhead you basically have to hike out and then drive down to the junction of the the kank and route 16 in order to get cell connection so you don't get any cell connection on the kank at all until you get out to Conway yeah so wow that sucks um so a passing hiker I guess was able to assist the victim by splinting his ankle and the victim was able to attempt to move down the trail but he didn't make significant progress so mm-hmm. um you know it happened around 5 30 um or so that fishing game got notified so it took 45 minutes for fishing game to get notified because the original injury happened at 4 15 the conservation officers and mountain rescue and lakes region uh, search and rescue were able to get to the hiker, stabilize his injury, and get him on a litter. They didn't get him back to the trailhead until eleven o'clock. Yeah. So I mean, think about that. Like this was in probably colder, cold conditions. But think about um, how long that would be in the winter with like 
you know, freezing cold conditions, like having that ground pad under you would be huge. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So, um, and then stop. As we are talking, um, I actually was able to pull up the news article about the rescue on Mount Avalon. So it is, it is out there. Oh, it is. Um, okay. Yep. Any, any so this th- happened on same day. So all three of these happened on October 22nd. Um, the hiker on Mount Avalon is a 54-year-old gentleman from Maine, and he was hiking with a religious group for the day, and they had ascended Mount Avalon and were coming down from the summit when this gentleman misjudged a steep section of the trail and took a fall. Yeah. Um, he was not able to walk down the trail. So that top section of Avalon is steep. Oh, so, yeah. So, yeah, Pemi Search and Rescue and... New Hampshire Army National Guard were called in to see if they could assist. Uh, the guard sent a flight crew to the location around 2.40, and they were able to place the victim into a litter and hoisted him into the helicopter to get him to the Crawford Notch Visitor Center. And eventually he was transported to Littleton Regional High School, um, Healthcare. Sorry. Um, so mm-hmm. that's about it. But luckily he was... You know the the helicopter was already in the air, and they were able to divert over to him. He was he was injured at one forty when the call came in, and then he was picked up by the the helicopter by two forty, so one hour. Okay, oh, nice work. Yep. Yeah, it's been a busy year. We can say that. Um, sure if, has. If you have no other comments on that, I do want to just touch upon one of those national stories because it's just too much, too too unusual to pass <laughs> then we sure. clean the slate <laughs> do you mind sure <laughs> all right this is a great one so tourists rescued after being stuck underground at grand canyon caverns so five people were rescued monday night and this is dated october 25th after being stranded 200 feet underground at the grand canyon caverns when an elevator broke down so they were 21 stories underground and apparently there were many elderly people that just could not walk back up the uh the flight of stairs the emergency stairs so they had to send search and rescue to go get these people out and apparently they were using um like uh rescue buckets and whatnot to to pull some of these folks out isn't that crazy yeah, I didn't even know there was like these caverns or elevators and stuff like that. I don't know, I know where this is in the Grand Canyon, but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and apparently there's like um there is actually like this deepest, darkest, quietest hotel room in the world, which is a thousand bucks a night down there. I it's just all kinds of neat information that I never considered before. But anyway, you don't yeah. hear about people getting trapped in the Grand Canyon elevators too often. I would have let, if I had that hotel room, I would have let those old people like share a bed. I would have said, you can take one of my beds. (laughs) Yeah. I'll take the pullout sofa. You can take the king size bed. (laughs) So funny. All right, man. Well, number 80, 20 more to go before our hundred episodes. Holy moly. Yeah. And stomp, by the way. Yeah. That is truly a tourist trap. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I did one. I did a dad joke. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Well, look, I'm choking yeah. after that one. After yeah. uh, after all the, the jokes I dropped on Larry the Log, I'm like yes. in that, uh, you know, when Eleven on Stranger Things uses her powers and then collapses. I'm in that yes. collapse mode right now. But nice yeah. job. That was Thank a you. good one. 
damn i'm proud of me <laughs> you should be get cool. it but up for sure <laughs> all right we are out of here all right until later. next time bye very good <laughs> thank you for listening if you enjoyed the show you can subscribe on apple podcasts spotify podbean youtube or wherever you listen to podcasts If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stump, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lucinda, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us. <laughs> <laughs>